Chapter Twenty Seven of Devlin the Barber by B. L. Fargen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It would occupy too long a time, I replied, to make my theory thoroughly comprehensible to you. Besides, I added, glancing at Devlin, it is a theory strangely born and strangely built up, and, in all likelihood, you would reject the most important parts of it as incredible and impossible. Therefore, we will not waste time in explaining or discussing it. Sufficient for us if we succeed in tracing this dreadful mystery to its roots and in bringing the murderer to justice. If I do not mistake, here comes the man I am waiting for. It was, indeed, Bill Foster, pioneered by the sharp lad who had engaged to find him. "'Here he is, sir,' said the boy, holding out his hand, half eagerly, half doubtfully. "'Your name is Foster.' I said, addressing the man. "'That's me,' said Foster. "'You drove a party from Athelstan Road early this morning?' "'Yes.' I counted five shillings into the boy's outstretched hand, and he scampered away in great delight. "'There's half a sovereign for you,' I said to Bill Foster, "'if you answer correctly a few questions.' "'About the party I drove from Athelstan Road?' he asked. "'My questions will refer to them. You seem to hesitate.' "'The fact is,' said Bill Foster, "'the gentleman gave me a florin over my fare to keep my mouth shut.' "'Only a fifth of what I offer you,' I said. "'Make it a sovereign,' suggested Devlin. "'I've no objection,' I said. "'All right,' said Bill Foster. "'Fire away.' "'The gentleman bribed you to keep silence respecting his movements?' I asked. "'It must have been for that,' replied Bill Foster. "'Proving,' I observed, that he must have had some strong reason for secrecy. "'That's got nothing to do with me,' remarked Bill Foster. "'Of course not. What you've got to do is to earn the sovereign. Who engaged you for the job?' "'The gentleman himself. I wasn't out with my trap so early, and someone must have told him where I live. Anyways, he comes at a quarter past six, and knocks me up and says there's a good job waiting for me at 28 Athelstan Road, if I'd come at once. I says, all right, and I puts my horse to, and drives there. I got to the house at ten minutes to seven, and I drives the party to the London, Chatham, and Dover. How many were in the party? Four. The gentleman, a middle-aged lady, and two young'uns. About what ages were the young ladies? Can't quite say. They wore veils, but I should reckon from eighteen to twenty-two. That's near enough. What luggage was there? Two trunks, a small box, and some other little things they took care of themselves. You had charge of the two trunks? Yes. And of the small box? Oh, no. The gentleman wouldn't let it out of his hands. I offered to help him with it, but he wouldn't let me touch it. That surprised you? Well, yes, because it was uncommon heavy. If it was filled with gold, he couldn't have been more careful of it. Perhaps it was, I said, turning slightly to Richard Carton. It was heavy enough. Why, he could hardly carry it. Did either of the ladies appear anxious about it? Yes, the middle-aged one. When I saw them so particular, I said, said I, to myself, you know, I shouldn't mind having that myself. When the gentleman told you to drive to the London Chatham and Dover station, did he say what train he wished to catch? No, but I found out the train they went by. It was the down train for Ramsgate, 731. 
They reached the station some time before it started? Yes, twenty minutes before. After the gentleman took his tickets, he came from the platform two or three times and looked at me. What are you waiting for? he asked the last time. For a fare, I answered. Look here, he said. If anybody asks you any questions about me, don't answer them. Why shouldn't I? I asked. It was then he pulled out the florin. Oh, very well, I said. It's no business of mine. But I didn't go away till the train started with them in it. Do you know whether they intended to stop in Margate? I should say not. As I drove him to the station, I heard the gentleman speak to the middle-aged lady, his wife, I suppose, about the boat for Bologna. I gave a start of vexation. Devlin smiled. Carton was following the conversation with great attention. Do you know what boat? The Sir Walter Raleigh. The gentleman had one of the bills in his hand and was looking at it. He said to the lady, We shall be in plenty of time. Do you know at what time the boat starts from Ramsgate for Boulogne? Leaves the harbour at half-past nine, but is generally half an hour late. I looked at my watch. It was just eleven o'clock. Is there any chance, I asked, of this boat being delayed? Why should it? The weather's fair. Is there any other boat starting for Boulogne this morning? None. There's the Sir Walter Raleigh from Ramsgate, and sometimes the India from here. But the India don't go to-day. Could we hire a boat from here? You might. It would be risky, and would cost a lot of money. Then there's no saying when you would get there. It's a matter of between forty and fifty miles, and the steamers take about five hours getting across. Sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. There's no depending upon em. Look here. You're going to behave to me liberal. You want to follow the party I drove from Athistan this morning. Show me the way to get to Bologna to-day, I said, and I'll give you another half-sovereign. Practical creature, murmured Devlin. In human beings there is but one true touchstone. Spoke like a real gentleman, said Bill Foster to me. What time is it? Five minutes past eleven. Wait here. I shan't be gone but a few minutes. Get everything ready to start directly I come back. His trap was standing at the corner of Royal Crescent. He ran out, jumped on the box, and was gone. I called to the waiter, and in three minutes the hotel bill was paid, and we were ready. During Bill Foster's absence I said to Carton, Do you make anything of all this? It looks, replied Carton, as if my guardian was running away. To my mind there's not a doubt of it. Have you any idea what that little box he would not let out of his charge contains? The two thousand sovereigns he obtained from the bank, said Carton, in a tone of inquiry. Exactly. I tell you now plainly that I am positive Mr. Kenneth Dowsett is implicated in the murder of your poor girl. Carton set his teeth in great agitation. If he is, if he is, he said, but he could say no more. Bill Foster was back. There's a train to Folkestone, he cried, the southeastern line at eleven-forty-seven. You can catch it easily. If there's no boat handy from Folkestone to Bologna, you'll be able to hire one there. The steamers take two hours going across. You can get there in four. Train arrives at Folkestone at one-twenty-seven. By six o'clock you can be in Bologna. Jump into my trap, gentlemen. We jumped in and were driven to the station. His information was correct. I gave him thirty shillings, and he departed in high glee.
Then we took tickets for Folkestone, and arrived there at a quarter to two. There was no steamer going, but with little difficulty we arranged to get across. The passage took longer than four hours, it took six. At nine o'clock at night we were in Bologna. I cannot speak an intelligible sentence in French. Carton was too agitated to take the direction of affairs. "'Do you know where we can stop?' I asked of Devlin. "'Have you ever been here before?' "'My dear sir,' said Devlin, "'I have travelled all over the world, and I know Bologna by heart. There's a little out-of-the-way hotel, the Hôtel de Poilly, in Rue de l'Amiral Bruix, that will suit us as though it were built for us.' "'Let us get there at once,' I said. He called a fly, and in a very short time we entered the courtyard of the Hotel de Poilly. There we made arrangements with the jolly, comfortable-looking landlady, and then I looked at Carton, and he looked at me. The helplessness of our situation struck us both forcibly. "'Who is in command?' asked Devlin suddenly. "'You,' I replied, as by an inspiration. "'Good,' said Devlin. "'I accept the office.' From this moment you are under my orders. Remain you here. I go to reconnoitre. You will return, I said. My dear sir, said Devlin airily, it is too late now to doubt my integrity. I will return. For God's sake, said Carton, when Devlin was gone, who is this man who seems to divine everything, to know everything, and whom nothing disturbs? Sometimes when he looks at me I feel that he is exercising over me a terrible fascination. I cannot answer you, I said. Be satisfied with the knowledge that it is through him we have so far succeeded, and that, in my belief, it will be through him that the murderer will be tracked down. The world is full of mysteries, and that man is not the least of them. It wanted an hour to midnight when Devlin returned. In his inscrutable face I read no sign of success or failure, but the first words he spoke afforded me infinite relief. "'I have seen him,' he said. "'Let us go out and talk. Walls have ears.' The river Liang was but a short distance from the hotel, and we strolled along the bank in silence, Devlin, contrary to my expectation, not uttering a word for many minutes. He had lit a cigar, and Carton had accepted one from him. I refused to smoke, having too vivid a remembrance of the cigar I had smoked in Fanny Lemon's house, and its effect upon me. At length Devlin said to Carton, "'You appear sleepy.' "'I am,' said the young man. "'You had best go to bed,' said Devlin. "'Nothing can be done to-night.' Carton, assenting, would have returned to the hotel alone, saying he could find the way, but I insisted that we should accompany him thither. I had heard that Boulogne was not the safest place in the world for strangers on a dark night. Having seen Carton to his room, we returned to the river's bank. Had Carton been in possession of his full senses, he would doubtless have objected, but he was dead asleep when he entered his bedroom, Devlin's cigar having affected him as the one I smoked had affected me. "'He encumbers us,' said Devlin, looking out upon the dark river. I have discovered where Mr. Dowsett is lodging, and were our young friend informed of the address, he might rush there and spoil all. We happen to be in luck, if you believe in such a quality as luck. I do not, but I use the term out of a compliment to you. Mr. Dowsett's quarters are in the locality of the Rue de la Paix, and, singularly enough, are situated over a barber's shop. Things go in runs, do they not? Nothing but barbers. 
I do not return with you to the hotel to-night. What do you mean? I asked, startled by this information. The proprietor of the barber's shop over which Mr. Kenneth Dowsett is sleeping, but, perhaps not sleeping, for a sword is hanging above his head, and he may be gazing at the phantom in terror, say, then, over which he is lying, is an agreeable person. I have struck up an acquaintance with him, and, by arrangement, shall be in his saloon to-morrow, to attend to any persons who may present themselves. Mr. Dowsett will probably need the razor and the brush. I can easily account for my appearance in Boulogne. I have come to see my friend and brother. Mr. Dowsett, unsuspecting, for what connection can he trace between me and Lizzie Melladew, will place himself in my hands. He has told me that there is not my equal. He may find that it is so. In order that I may not miss him, I go to the house to-night. Early in the morning come you alone to the Rue de la Paix. You can ride to the foot of the hill, there alight, and on the right-hand side, a third of the way up, you will see my new friend's establishment. I will find you a snug corner from which you may observe and hear, yourself unseen, all that passes. Are you satisfied now that I am keeping faith with you? Indeed, you are proving it, I replied. Give me no more credit than I deserve, said Devlin. It is simply that I keep a promise. In the fulfilment of this promise, both in the spirit and to the letter, my dear sir, I may to-morrow unfold to you a wonder. It is my purpose to compel the man we have pursued to himself reveal all that he knows of Lizzie Melladew. Perhaps it will be as well for you to take down in writing what passes between us. Accept it from me that there are unseen forces and unseen powers in this world, so rich in sin, of which few men dream. See those shadows moving on the water? Are they not like living spirits? The dark river itself, had it a tongue, could appall you. On such nights as this are secret crimes committed by devils who bear the shape of men. What kind of being is that who smiles in your face, who presses your hand, who speaks pleasant words to you, and harbours all the while in what is called his heart a felt design, towards the execution of which he moves without one spark of compassion? I don't complain of him, my dear sir. On the contrary. And here, although I could not see Devlin's face, I could fancy a sinister smile overspreading it. I rather delight in him. It proves him to be what he is, and he is but a type of innumerable others. Your innocent ones are arrogant in the vaunting of their goodness. Your ambitious ones glory in their successes, which bring ruin to their brethren. Your kings and emperors appropriate providence, and do not even pay a shilling for the conscription. A grand world, and grandly peopled. The man who glories in sin compels my admiration. But this one, whom we are hunting, is a coward and a sneak. He shall meet his doom. As he ceased speaking, he vanished. I can find no other word to express the effect his sudden disappearance had upon me. Whether he intended to create a dramatic surprise I cannot say, but, certainly, he was no longer by my side. With some difficulty I found my way alone back to the Hotel de Poilly, where Carton was fast asleep. End of chapter 27